The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. The number of members removing their names from the records of the Church has always been very small and is significantly less in recent years than in the past. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon, welcome back. We're here at it again. It's another Wednesday night. How are you doing, Bill Real? I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to be here as well. Let's start off with some big news. If you're looking up on the screen right now, uh, Marriage on a Tightrope, one of the Mormon Discussion podcasts hosted by Alan and Katie Mount, uh, made the New York Times. What do you think about this? I think that's amazing. By the way, hashtag, this is the Lazy Learners episode. The Lazy Learner. We are. I'm going to have to retitle it because it is the Lazy Learners episode. Uh, general yes. edition. But yes, uh, our colleagues, um, Katie with two T's and Alan, but they think two L's, Mount made it onto the New York Times recently. Yeah, that's a that's a major newspaper, right? There they are, right there. So there's Alan and Katie, and we love them. And I think, you know, you and I, I think, uh, have put out a lot of great work in, in the time that we've been doing podcasting. Uh, and you did a lot of things with blogs before that. But I don't think anybody, again, is doing a greater work than helping mixed faith couples navigate uh, those marriages, which come with lots of complications and lots of concerns and tensions. And these guys are doing a hell of a good job. So they've got several quotes in here from them, and they're trying to address other kinds of podcasts that are out there that are helping relationships. And one of uh, a small number of them that they chose to highlight, uh, Alan and Katie's Marriage on a Tightrope podcast, if you are in a mixed faith marriage... Uh, I can't think of a better place to point you to than Alan and Katie Mount in Marriage on a Tightrope. Uh, their podcasts can be found on iTunes and every other place that uh, you find podcasts. Um, RFM, tonight, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about General Conference. Let me um, switch it up here. Did and we just have a General Conference? We Yeah, we just had a General Conference. I, I didn't watch any of it live uh, after it was over, I went onto the blogger knackle and saw a few places where some things were being mentioned. And we're going to highlight kind of one talk in particular. Uh, I hope folks are joining in. It looks like we've got 83 folks here at the moment. Welcome all. Welcome. Yeah, I would suggest folks, if you don't mind, if you would share uh, this podcast with folks, uh, that would help us out a bunch. We've already got 24 comments and uh, I will check uh, out some of those here in just a moment. But if you would share these, this, uh, this link, this YouTube link, maybe to Facebook and some other places, uh, Reddit forums or whatnot, we certainly want to get some views up. And uh, I think we got a great episode for tonight. It was my week, and I just thought we would kind of hash out a few things from General Conference. So let me pull up the first one, and that is these recent handbook changes that uh, just occurred and I want to tie these a little bit into some things that have happened in the past. So let me, uh, banner, brand, put that back out that way. And so this is section 37. This is leadership in a single adult ward. One of the big changes, this came out a day or two before conference. 
you and I were talking about that this through the week. There is now allowed in single adult wards, the counselors of a bishopric and other callings too, but primarily they're pointing to counselors and a bishopric. It used to be all had to be married men. Now the counselors and a bishopric can be single uh, men. And I wanted to get your thoughts, RFM, before I kind of share my concerns. I, I do think this is a positive change. I think the church is acknowledging, and Jana Reese has hit on this, that we have more single members in the LDS church than we've ever had as adults. Uh, I think it's like 42 or 47 percent, some high number. And they're trying to figure out ways to utilize these folks. I think that's good. These people need a place to serve. I enjoyed, and I'm sure you did, much of my time serving in the LDS church. I think that's probably one, if we were going to say that one of the great things the church does, serving side by side with other ward members was a blast for me, and I really loved that time. Uh, your thoughts, RFM, on this change? Well, I think there's a number of things to be said. I think that the church is definitely spinning this in terms of giving more people opportunities to serve. I think that it's significant that it's happening now. And I think that uh, the reason it's significant is because over and over in the past several years, what I am seeing are policy changes and restructuring of the church that is indicative of a church that is losing members. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to indicate, just as the change that happened a few years back where they combined the elders quorum and the high priest group, you and I, when that happened, we were, we were talking and we said, it looks like they're running out of help and wards are getting smaller. And I know my ward back in Sandusky, Ohio has gotten smaller. Um, I know that I get feedback, and I'm sure you do, that from lots of folks that their wards are getting smaller, their stakes are merging, and wards are getting by with less people. And so we saw that change of the combining of the elders quorum and the high priest group, and that being an indicator that they were running out of help. As you're pointing out, I think this is also that. Now, I'm going to say something that I think runs the risk of people criticizing what I say. I want to be careful I want to acknowledge like all human beings struggle with human imperfections. And uh, I, I am the first person to understand that. All you have to do is listen to my Almost Awakened podcast. And I'm always talking about every human being and their unhealthiness. I'm a little concerned that we're going to run into more sex abuse cases. And we have plenty of them with married men. There are bishops in the news all the time with the LDS church being arrested for some type of sexual uh, impropriety. My concern is that you're going to have single men. Now imagine this, you're in a, you're in a single ward, so at least you're dealing with all adults, right? Um, but you have a single male who's, say, 50 years old, 40 years old. Um, I don't know what the age limits are on these wards, but I'm also, I'm also believing that at some point this change will become appropriate for all wards and stakes. I think that's down the pipeline. If I have a single male... <sighs> I'm worried about whatever um, unhealthiness he comes to the table with, and he doesn't have a spouse at home to help balance that, to help round off those sharp edges. And now he's doing interviews. He's not, he's not supposed to be masturbating. That's a bad thing in Mormonism. He can't be touching himself. He is not having premarital sex because you're not supposed to do that as, a, as an active Mormon. He's in the bishopric, so we're assuming he's got a temple recommend he's worthy. I'm worried about whatever sexuality he brings to the table and it being a little bit more of a pent up um, need that as he's sitting down with sisters of his singles ward and having interviews and in some future date when it's in a local ward with children, I'm extremely nervous that the 
number of abuse cases that the church experiences already that Ryan McKnight and Mormon leaks have covered to an nth degree. I'm nervous that those are going to go up. And, and I, I don't say that I know that's going to happen. And I, I don't want anybody to go like, man, come on, single men aren't any worse. Than, I don't think they are. What I think, though, is that by having the access to sexuality at home and having uh, access to uh, another human being who's not tolerating all of your unhealthiness and is poking back at those places, that a married man, I think, is less likely to overstep his bounds than a single man who doesn't have access to sexual experience. Um, anyway, that's my two cents on that that thought. Anything else on this issue before we move on? I don't I don't know. This is a big deal, but I thought it was generally a good move by the church to include singles in more res, uh, more opportunities for responsibility and service. Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, the combining of the elders quorums and the high priest groups throughout the church. What that means is that you've got three priesthood leaders over each group. You combine them and now you only need three in the elders quorum presidency because there's no high priest group. So what we've done is we have accommodated and changed the structure of the church in order to make it so that fewer priesthood leaders are necessary. I think that was probably one of the main motivating factors in this. Here we have another instance where we see uh, positions that were formerly only for married men now being made available to men who are not married, I think that this will go church-wide eventually. I think this is a step toward that. But once they run out of uh, guys, married or unmarried, to fill all these positions, I mean, who do they have left? They're going to have to start. Yeah, women and the gays, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're going to have to start tapping some women for these positions. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just want to say there are lots of comments from folks that are disagreeing with me. I, I understand that. I expect it as much. I don't think there's a difference in a single male and a married male in terms of the unhealthiness that they bring to the table. Um, I'm worried about someone who's never been married and some of that unhealthiness doesn't get poked back at in the natural course of marriage. I also want to say my, my issue would be resolved completely if there was two adults mandatory in every interview. And then, and then if that make, you know, if that change happens, which now we have moves to allow a parent to ask for two people to be in the room, adults with their kid. If we just get to the point where we just make two adults be in the room for interviews and we get away from asking all these specific sexual questions, then my concerns are resolved completely. Right. And I want the whole audience to know that, you know, I didn't chime in with what you said because I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. However, I'll say a bunch of controversial stuff later on that everybody right. will disagree with. And, and, you know, for some folks are just asking, like, what do I mean? I just... I just mean normal sexuality that men and women have, and you have men in leadership positions, and they maybe come to the table with a little less resistance having happened uh, in their life over what those things are. Um, that's all. So I'll move on. Right. Uh, like Donnie Mo said in the early version, uh, early episode of Happy Days, when talking about the divorcee who moved in down the street, says, Richie, if you were getting chocolate sundaes every day, and you really like chocolate sundaes. And then all of a sudden, you couldn't have any more chocolate sundaes. Wouldn't you really want a chocolate sundae? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't speak for myself, but yeah, I would like a chocolate sundae. Okay, anyway, so everything I needed to learn growing up, I learned from Happy Days. Yeah, 
There we go. So um, let's let's move on to the next thing. The next thing is the membership numbers. Uh, let me find an image here and we'll put it up. Yeah, you've been crunching these numbers like nobody's business. You've been seeing some interesting things in them. Yeah, and so uh, let me get rid of the comment that's on the screen and we'll... Uh... And we certainly agree with that comment. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, I, I'm happy to have pushback. If, if there's data out there, I'm a database guy. I'm a critical thinker. So if somebody's got evidence that uh, married men are more prone to do improprieties than single men, like I'm happy to have that data. Please send it on. Mormon discussions, plural, podcast, plural at gmail.com. So this was the membership numbers they released. On the very far right of your screen will be the 2020 uh, numbers. And uh, just before that, in the middle there is 2019. And then I put up 2018. I'll just note from 2018 to 2019, it was interesting prior to COVID. So we don't have COVID affecting these numbers. Uh, new children of record went from 102,000 for the year down to 94,000. That's about a 10% decrease, a little less than 10, but just about a 10% decrease. Is that children who are getting blessed and a name? And so then they're entered upon the records of the church? Yes. So this new children of record. So uh, when somebody is born in the covenant, they begin to be counted as members of the church when they receive their name and a blessing as a baby. And uh, for those who are converts to the church, you get added to the roles at your baptism. That is the date that gets entered into the records as when you became a member of the church. Uh, I'm going to take a quick sip of my coffee here. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing taste. Um, so when we go to 2020, I'm going to acknowledge up front, COVID absolutely affects these numbers. How much, we don't know. What I'm also beginning to feel is that people see a much more whitewashed, simplified kind of Mormonism, a very bland Mormonism that doesn't really talk about all the messy stuff anymore. It has changed sexism in the temple. Good things, by the way. It is being more honest about its history. So now for the first time and since you know 2013 to now is the first segment of time where a member of the church could even begin to understand some of the contradictory information to their belief systems from the church's website. Um, and so as we look at these numbers, a couple things stand out. Uh, one is that new children of record during 2020, 65,440 people. That is uh, almost 30,000 people lower than 2019. Notice converts baptized during 2020, 125,000. Um, that's almost 50% off. That's basically half of what happened the year before. And full-time missionaries, remember Elder Holland when he said we'd get up to 100,000? Mm, yeah. That's a prophecy that, uh, or, or a statement of what was to come. That was a statement of what was to come that failed miserably. We are now down to 51,819 missionaries. Notice the year before, 67,000. This is the number I'm most interested in following year after year because I think the number of full-time missionaries out for the church represents the faith and activity of the church as a whole. Uh, it represents how many young families are raising their kids in the church, how many kids feel uh enough of a testimony to go out on a mission. But let me give you a little bit of math. There's something wrong with these numbers, and I'll try to explain it here. So 2020's membership total, that's this total membership here, 
663. Now, if you subtract from that 2019's membership total of 16 million 565,036, that gives us the net difference year over year of 98,627. This should be the number of people, the difference between the number of people who came into the church versus the number of people who went out of the church, either by death or excommunication, right? So this, this, so they're telling us everybody who came in, they're giving us both those totals and they're telling us what the net difference is. So with a little bit of simple math, I took, I took elementary education math in college. So I was just working with basically addition and subtraction, but I was really good at it. And that's basically all I needed for this. Um, the, if we combine the convert baptisms plus the new children of record, that gives us uh, 125,000 plus the 65,000 and some change. We end up with 191,370. If we subtract from that the year-over-year -year difference of 98,627, we arrive at the number 92,743. The moment I saw that number, something just didn't feel right. So then I went and looked at the world death rate. The world death rate is 770 deaths per 100,000 people in the, in the world. And the U.S. death rate is about the same, although in 2020, COVID caused that number to be uh, 829 per 100,000. But the U.S. and the world and Utah is a little bit better, but not much, 7.2, 7.3 per 1,000 or 720 or 730 out of every 100,000. And again, I'm going through numbers. I, I know I'm going to be kind of boring as hell doing this. But when you understand the world death rate, the U.S. death rate, the Utah death rate, you recognize that the number of deaths that the church experienced with a membership in the 16 million and some change range should have been about 125,000 to 138,000. Now, I served as a bishop once. We had a ward of 400 people. We had 120 to 150 coming active every week. So we had a lot of inactives. We struggled as a small ward with a large number of inactives to keep track of everybody. We lost people like everybody else did. But our ward, I think, was average at picking out deaths. And we had members in our bishopric who would watch the obituaries and would bring any member's name in that died that we just didn't have in attendance and hadn't seen in a while. We tried to keep track of that stuff. So I think some of those get lost. But I don't, I don't have an explanation for why basically it looks like about 30% of deaths go completely unrecorded if the 92,743 represents deaths only, but it doesn't. It should also represent all the people using Quit Mormon, which they keep track of that data. I think we're somewhere in the range of 16,000 to 20,000 per year now that Quit Mormon is processing. We have people who are like me and others who are excommunicated. And, and I'll, in the church's favor, we also have a few of those who come back. So we ought to recognize that that number is also missing. And when I look at the data, RFM, what I see is that the only explanation I have, and I'm, I'm happy to have the church correct me and tell me how they put this number together. The only way I can make this number work is if the 92,743 is just the deaths in the church. 
And about 30% of those they can't really keep track of. Those people get tracked year after year until they're, what, how old? Like 110 years old or something? Yeah. So there are a lot of 110-year-old dead people on the church's rolls that are counted in that 16 million. Mormonism is one of the few churches that uh, keeps track of its membership simply based on who's on the rolls. And if we don't keep track of them, we keep maintaining that till 110 or 115. Um, most churches track attendance. Church Mormon church doesn't want to do that. They don't want to tell you attendance. This number only makes sense if they're tracking deaths. And my gut tells me, and I've had inklings of rumors about this for a long time, RFM, but that they keep tracking the people who leave anyway, that they're not telling you and they're not subtracting that number from their total. Otherwise, none of this makes any sense. Do you? Can you make any better sense of the data than I can? No, I can. And statistics is not my forte, I will tell you that. But I do notice something. By the way, the church does track attendance very closely. And I know you know that uh, because every, what is it, sacrament meeting, you've got the word clerk walking up and down the aisles of the chapel. And he's writing that down. He's just numbers putting those numbers together, you know he's not doing it for the fun of it. It's his assignment. He sends it to Salt Lake. Salt Lake keeps track of attendance. They just don't tell us what those numbers are. Um, had you concluded that thought? Because there was another thing I want to talk about the babies. The only other thing I want to add to that is um, our ward clerk would keep track of attendance every Sunday. You were supposed to track it. I think it was the third Sunday of the month was the actual month that gets reported to Salt Lake. I know our ward cheated. They would put the week that they had the highest attendance that month in because that's how your budgets are all formed. And so if you record the highest attendance you had for that month, then you got a little bit more money coming in each year for the next year uh, to su support events and activities for the youth and other things going on. Um, there's no doubt those clerks want to count every single member um, and keep track of that. But these numbers, again, just don't seem to make a lot of sense. Go ahead and go ahead and tell me what your, your thoughts were on the other thing. Yeah, the numbers that are simple enough for me to follow um, are the church, the new children of record during 2018. So there's a change there between that and 2019. COVID should not be involved in this because it started at the beginning of 2020, really, um, at least with church closures, blah, blah, blah. So We've got new children of record during 2018, 102,000. That drops in 2019 to 94,000. That's like a 6 or 7% drop. I want to know what's going on with those babies. What is wrong with the babies in this church? And you would think, right, like this is a simple ordinance that every parent wants to do. I, I remember when my kids were born and I was all in. It is the baby blessing is such a big moment in a young family's life. It's such an important ritual to introduce this child, right? The mom usually would stay home until <clears throat> her and the baby felt well enough and safe enough to come back to church because of illnesses and colds and flus and things. And then for the first time, you're blessing this baby and then everybody would hold it up and they'd, they'd show the entire congregation. <clears throat> and, you know, you, you had your name picked out, but this is kind of the first moment everybody gets to hear what the name of the baby is. Uh, it's such an important moment. And this is an ordinance that's simple enough to do at home. I, I can't explain why this number is so low, especially when you look at church service missionaries, for instance, is another number that practically stayed the same. Whatever needs the church had for that, those responsibilities, it kept everybody in. I don't believe that ward members are waiting an entire year to get their baby blessed. You got a one-year-old that you're going to, something's going on here. And I think this number will go up a little bit once we get out of COVID and we get some accurate numbers back. 
But I think something shifted and changed here that does not explain COVID doesn't explain all of this. Yes. Well, I think it's more than just the babies being AWOL. What's going on here? I think what this reflects is what we all understand is going on is that young people are leaving the church in droves. Yeah. Young people leaving the church equals fewer fathers and mothers of children being in church when the babies are born and when they would normally be blessed, which means that they're not being entered on the records of the church, which means we're seeing a drop in the numbers. Yes. And um, again, you already saw that thing drop from 2018 to 2019. And if if all the secular data about the nuns is accurate, then we certainly should expect a greater distance of divide from 2019 to 20 if we could just completely pull COVID out. And I actually think it's even more severe than that. Like it, it feels like something significant. Um, the other thing, I'll, let me pull up the other picture here. Interesting thing from some of the numbers and stuff. I'll let me make this a little bigger. Um, one of the things President Nelson seems to be really big on is outdoing Hinckley at every turn, doesn't he? With this whole word Mormon going by the wayside and and I think he felt poked by Hinckley coming up the next conference and essentially correcting his statements on the use of the word Mormon. Nelson has announced way more temples than Gordon B. Hinckley. The downside is they haven't really built any of them. Your, your thoughts on the, the lack of dedications and temple building going on? Well, this whole temple thing is, is interesting in the first instance in that uh, generally, one thinks of temples being a sign or a manifestation of church growth, more church members, more chapels needed, more temples needed in order to take care of the people who are going to the temple in greater numbers. But we're seeing a disconnect here where the uh, membership numbers are flatlining, and yet the temple announcements, at least, proceed as if we were still in the same growth rate that we were in, say, back in the 1980s. Are you are you nervous that we're going to have a lot of empty temples in about uh, 15 years, 20 years? I think we have a lot of empty temples now. <laughs> I, I'm not in disagreement, but I mean barren. I mean like for sale signs and for sale with re, on, real, on real estate pages. Like we already see ward buildings that that happens to now fairly regularly. If you go on ex-Mormon Reddit, it's not, you know, every three weeks or so, I see a ward building up for sale. Um, I don't know who they're going to put in these temples. If people are leaving, if most of the membership is older membership and young people especially are going out, they're going to have to have like endowment sessions of 10 people or something. Yeah. The only people who are going to buy a temple are the Masons. Yeah. And I, and I think it was really smart uh, of President Hinckley to start moving towards smaller temples because... Uh, you can see that maybe President Hinckley is a little bit more of a prophet than President Nelson, mm. but you also see by this graph that President Nelson is dead set on being uh, better than Hinckley at announcing temples. That the trouble is, you got to put that last stone together, and you got to say, I got to say a prayer inside the building and get things moving, right? Yeah, the smaller temples, you could just sort of put a, um, a holiday inn sign out front, maybe throw in a swimming pool, and you could sell it probably as a hotel. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the last thing that I've got here is uh, I want to talk for a moment about one of the talks in conference. Uh, folks, if you, if you were caught off guard by a certain talk and there was something specific in it that you thought was really healthy or unhealthy, uh, put it in the comments and I'll kind of watch those and RFM will watch those. And if something we didn't catch 
happened. I know there were some talks that were really inclusive. I know there were some talks that were had some really dogmatic uh, language, some very exclusive language to them. If you see, if you have something that stands out, please put it in the comments. Uh, otherwise, the talk I want to point us to is President Nelson's uh, talk e here. Let me pull it up. Easter morning. By the way, while you're pulling it up, can I tell you my story about uh, the first blessing for my first kid back in the 80s, back in the young single adult ward in University of Texas at Austin? Okay. I, I was so excited. I, I mean, I was very, very excited. And uh, go up there to the front with all the guys I'd talked to beforehand. They're going to be in the circle, right? Yeah. And I get up there and we're getting to the circle and I've got the microphone and I look around and I realize something's missing. Mm, and what's that? The kid. <laughs> I forgot the baby. <laughs> I had to go back and get the baby and everybody's laughing. It was fun. It was quite memorable. Oh my goodness. Um, here we go. There's no baby. That guy. I know is, that man. That guy's 90 something years old. That's not a baby. I think he's 96 um, now. I got to figure out why this almost awakened logo is on this thing. I didn't somehow I must've accidentally left that up for a minute. I think it does disappear at some point. Let me pull up uh, some time. Um, so what we want to do is we want to go to the, uh, I, I don't, when we pulled this off RFM, they had one continuous block of video that covered the entire session of conference. So I had so to, eternal uh, I had, I had to, to uh, go find this specific time here and I'm, trouble is if you don't have play playing it won't show you the timestamp. so bear with the noise for illness, a moment i'll mute me and it or other person president nelson has very nice neckties i approve of his neckwear and i heard this talk live on easter morning now everybody this is easter morning it's the last talk of the easter morning session this is primacy of place this is the prophet of god speaking on easter morning when yeah we celebrate the resurrection of jesus and this is the message that he decided he wanted to give. Right. So here we go. Even though your personal challenges may loom as large as Mount Everest, your mountains may be loneliness, doubt, illness, or other personal problems. Your mountains will vary. And yet the answer to each of your challenges is to increase your faith. That takes work. Lazy learners and lax disciples will always struggle to muster even a particle of faith. All right, I want to stop there for a moment. And I want to, um, first off, he names a list of things. He gives a, I don't know, was three or four things that people may be struggling with or dealing with that are giving them hardship right now. One of them being doubts. And then he, he mentions this idea that it takes work, that lazy learners and lax disciples will only struggle to muster even a particle of faith. And this has pissed off the entire blogger knackle. Um, for, for the reason that I think all of us get, which is deconstructing Mormonism was a pain in the ass because you had to read so much darn stuff. I literally from seven, you know, I know you did this much earlier than me. You're older than I am at 17 years old. I am diving into this stuff and I haven't really come up to take a breath from water yet. Um, I'm constantly reading and thinking about Mormonism when it comes to preparing for podcasts or preparing for live shows, uh, 
I want to know every every detail, and it's taken me 25 years to get to the point that I know what I know, and I know that I put more time and energy in than the other Latter-day Saints that were in my ward. I was the guy they looked to to have the the history, to know the under to know the data, to know the scriptures, to memorize all these things. It really felt like a poke from uh, President Nelson, a prophet, seer, and revelator of the LDS Church, to paint, to some degree, I'll, I'll grant, maybe he's not talking about everybody, to some degree, those who have doubts and leave as being lazy learners. Your your thoughts on the, the lazy learner idea? Well, I had a few thoughts about this. This whole part of his talk, I was listening to live on Sunday morning. Uh, I had my earbuds in. I wasn't watching it, but I'm listening to it. And as he's starting to move into this area of his talk, I'm starting to go, "Uh oh, boy, I wouldn't be going there. President Nelson, this is probably not a good look for you. The first impression I get is you're sounding desperate. And and as I went on to think about it, uh, I thought, I know this is a difficult time for you, President Nelson. I know you're frustrated and upset. I know you spent your entire life climbing to the top of the LDS leadership ladder. See, I can do L alliteration as well. To the top of the LDS leadership ladder, you outlived all 14 apostles who were above you when you were called as an apostle. I know that your rise to the presidency just happened to coincide with the shit hitting the fan for the LDS church. I know that members are leaving the church in record numbers, especially the youth. Look at the baby numbers again. You have tried all sorts of band-aids. I know that you have tried. You've tried so many different kinds of little revelations here, there, and everywhere. You've tried all these little band-aids in order to stop the hemorrhaging, but the band-aids aren't working. Nothing you try is working. I know you are frustrated and you don't know what else to do to stop members from leaving the church, but this is not a good look on you. You shouldn't show your frustration and you shouldn't show your desperation. So those were the first thoughts that I had on Sunday. Yeah, and I, I want to note a couple little things. If you notice, his voice seems a little messed up at places. I think we were in a text group where there was a recognition that his S sounds were almost whistles uh, going through the audio. But it wasn't just that. In the very beginning, and I, don't, I won't go back and play it. You guys can go play it yourselves. In the very beginning, his speech got really slow and almost a little slurred. I'm a little worried health-wise. Now, on to your point, um, Gordon B. Hinckley, the church thrived under. If this guy has a problem with President Hinckley and wants to outdo him at every turn, he's really going to have a hard time. Because I think most of us, even outside the church, I still look at Gordon B. Hinckley with this like appreciation and a smile on my face. Uh, the church grew dramatically under Hinckley and leading up to that point, starts to plateau essentially at Monson, and I think uh, Russell M. Nelson is going to see his presidency in part be defined by the moment that the church started shrinking. And it is strange as everybody sees all those numbers going down, those membership numbers, uh, to also recognize temples going up in this contradiction of thought that seems to be happening that RFM and I are pointing out going on at church headquarters. Uh, any other thoughts here on lazy learners? Probably too many, but I will tell you this, is that um, as I started thinking about this talk yesterday, because I wanted to have something to contribute to tonight's show, and I knew we were going to be focusing on this talk, I started sitting 
more and more with these words that he had said. And amazingly to myself, I began experiencing anger. And that's not you. I'm the guy, when we talk, I'm the guy who's uh, much more emotional. When something pisses me off, I get pissed. And and you come in like so calm, like, eh, you know, people do things and things happen. And sometimes bad guys do stuff and people get away with things. And because you deal with it every day as a lawyer, um, the reality that you seem in almost every instance to be the cool, calm guy in the room as crap is going down and happening. And I thought it was deeply interesting that you pointed to yourself as being one who's got angry over these words. What what do you think that stems from? Like, what is your what is your ideas in your head that go along with that emotion as that emotion is is striking you? Well, I'm sure it comes from my human mother, Jane Wyman. Okay, never mind. We'll continue. Yeah, I started being surprised that I was who's Jane Wyman? She's the gal who plays Fox Mom in Star Trek. Okay, there we go. Okay. For those of you from Rio Linda. <laughs> yeah, real Linda. Oh my gosh. Okay. So anyway, see, this is good because you're helping me laugh, shake it off. I've shaken it off mostly. I was surprised that I'm feeling this because I don't usually, but I'm actually feeling throughout the day this slow burn about this lazy learner stuff that he said. Yeah. Because I started I started taking it personally. And I actually started going over in my life all the things that I have done to study Mormonism. And I'm not going to bore everybody here with that tonight. But uh, I was doing it in my mind. and I kept coming back to this. What? You're calling me a lazy learner? And that's why I have doubts, really? I mean, I have studied Mormonism for over four decades. I have had two papers published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. I've had two more papers published in BYU Studies. I have studied this backward and forward, inside and out. And he's going to call me a lazy learner. And I thought of a lot of things to say in response to President Nelson, some of them not very kind and probably not repeatable, but I will quote President Biden to him. Come on, man. <laughs> I, You know what? Here's a picture. This is not my bookshelf. I saw this on Reddit the other day, but... This is my bookshelf. Like this looks a lot like my bookshelf. And I've probably thrown away at least twice that many books that were like old junk that I just never was going to use in preparing a episode again or, or needing to find some fact in rare Mormon data. But I have a massive church library and massive by my standard. Um, I know people in my family that are believing Mormons and their bookshelf of Mormon books is like five or six books. Like, you know, my cursor over here in that corner, just a few books on their shelf. And that's what they had. Uh, and I don't just have books to have books. I've read books. You know, I've read all these books on development of stuff in the temple of Richard Bushman's rough stone rolling of Fawn Brody. No man knows my history. Greg Prince's uh, magic in the world, you know, Mormonism in the magic worldview. Um, Quinn's books on uh, extensions of hierarchy and uh, was it beginnings of high, something like that. There was two book series. And then he came out with the one on finances as a third part later in his life. Um, I've read Patrick Mason's stuff. I've read Given's stuff. I've read James E. Talmadge. I've read B.H. Roberts. I'm, I'm aptly aware of Mormon history from the, from its founding. I can, I can sit and tell all the facts uh, I've studied the theology. I understand the doctrine. I've read Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine. 
I understand how everything has moved and shifted. I know what happened behind the scenes with the race, I, I, with, with the race issue. I've read dialogue. I've read Sunstone. Um, I, I read everything I could get my hands on if I could be more aware of a historical fact or the data. And I don't think most believing Mormons ever put a tenth. I think a tenth of the t- if they if if I could somehow explain to a believing Mormon a tenth of the time that I put into it, I think they would stand back and go, "I'm never going to even think about putting that kind of time into this thing." Right. Uh, to call me you. Uh, my buddy Chris has a library upstairs and a library downstairs to call these folks who deconstructed Mormonism lazy learners is a cheap shot that couldn't be further from the truth. If I was a lazy learner, I saw this on Reddit today and I agree. If I was a lazy learner, I'd be an active believing Mormon still. That's what I'd be. It's a complete inversion of the reality as I have experienced personally. And as I, and as I have witnessed it about me, the lazy learners are the ones most likely to stay in the church. I mean, he wishes all the members of the church were lazy learners yeah. because those are the ones who are most likely to stay in the church. It's the ones who are actually dedicated to learning about Mormonism who are more likely to end up becoming disaffected. Now, I'm not saying either in both camps. I'm just saying I think that's the tendency, and I think the data or would bear me out on that. There's a couple of other things that he's doing here that I find remarkable, one of which is it's kind of odd that President Nelson, who is a guy who has been totally and in large part, not exclusively, but he's been in on the game of hiding stuff, hiding information from the members of the church for decades. And now he's going to upgrade members who have doubts about truth claims of the church as lazy learners, when he's the guy who's been hiding the stuff and trying to keep him from finding it, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is I wish these guys could get their story straight, really, because here you've got uh, President Nelson upbraiding members for having doubts because they're lazy learners. You know, you never studied. We'll get to that clip here in a second. Uh, everything leads back to Ghostbusters or Star Trek or happy days for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's going to upbraid him for that because that's what leads to doubts. You're a lazy learner. You never studied. But then just a couple of years ago, we've got Elder Oaks, the next in line, his first counselor, telling a group of young adults, young marrieds, I think it was, in Chicago, that if your spouse has some questions about the church or doubts, he says, may I suggest to you that research is not the answer? Yeah. And Marlon Jensen uh, and or Terrell Givens said that what we're losing because of the Internet, because of information, because of people studying things is we're losing our best and brightest. That's the words of people being honest about the folks who are deconstructing and leaving. They're our best and our brightest. They are the most voracious studiers. If we're going to split these two groups into what their habits are, these are the people that need the facts. The truth matters. They're getting to the bottom of it. They're good critical thinkers. They're studying material all over the place. Um, Trying to put it back together, by the way, that's the initial effort is to try to put the toothpaste back in the tube and it becomes impossible because the more you keep shoving toothpaste in three times, 10 times, a hundred times more toothpaste is coming out. Mm. Yes. Very good point. Can Uh, we play, can we play that audio? My, my favorite audio that I supplied for tonight's show. Yeah. Let me, uh, it's 47 seconds. Here we go. So what? I guess guess they just just don't don't make them like they used to, huh? 
No! Nobody ever made them like this. I mean, the architect was either a certified genius or an authentic wacko. Ray, for a moment, pretend that I don't know anything about metallurgy, engineering, or physics, and just tell me what the hell is going on. You never studied. The architect's name was Evo Shandor. I found it in Tobin's spirit guide. He was also a doctor. Performed a lot of unnecessary surgery. And then in 1920, he started a secret society. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. Right. No studying. <laughs> this is immediately what it made me think of. President Nelson. He's like Dan Aykroyd talking to Bill Murray and Ghostbusters when they're in the New York City jail. Yeah. You never said yeah. You make assumptions about people, right? <laughs> you never studied. You never studied. <laughs> And, and let me ask you, RFM, again, I, I'm asking you to draw some conjecture, and that's never allowed in the courtroom, right? That can be objected to very easy, but you get away with it sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. So if I were to say, who knows more about Mormonism, all of its history, I, I would even venture to say maybe even its scriptures, RFM or Russell M. Nelson? Oh, that's terrible. You put me in that position. Me. Yeah. And Obviously. I, and I, yeah, I and mean, I, I don't want to say that I've forgotten more about Mormonism than President Nelson has ever learned. Yeah. But I guess I just did. Right. That's that's the thing. With most of the people who were believers in my life, I've forgotten more about Mormonism than I've ever learned. And and they don't get it, but they do, because if they look back on their memory, everyone I'm to a T would say Bill was the most informed guy in the room. He knew the history. He knew where the scriptures were. He knew how to quote this and quote that and pull it off without having to look at it. If somebody called in late and they needed a lesson taught. They ran up to me in the hallway and said, hey, you know, Sister Jones just canceled on us. Is there any way you can teach a lesson in 20 minutes? Then I would wing the lesson and I would have everybody excited because I knew my shit. And what I'm trying to say here is that they don't they don't they don't have a right to do this to people. People don't have a right to be called lazy learners. Um, I shouldn't say it. leaders don't have a right to call people lazy learners when those people are the ones who stayed up late at night diving into all of this stuff, trying to put it back together. That's what they wanted to do. I wanted to be a believing Mormon so damn bad that I kept trying to figure out how this stuff works. And uh, as I did, I just encountered more and more problems and my critical thinking and my attempt to um, put logic above emotion had me deconstructing and eventually disbelieving. And I didn't just stop at Mormonism. I, I read Reza Aslan. I read Bart Ehrman. I read, I, I listened to podcasts on the historical Jesus. I started studying faith development, thinking maybe if I understood how people think about these kinds of things, maybe I could come up with more nuance and I could make it work. Um, I studied how faith develops in a human being. Um, I started looking at my own unhealthy mechanisms, trying to figure out maybe I'm the barrier to, to adding this stuff up. I took learning in this life damn seriously and you did too and you know as much if not more than i do and then i go and i look at the reddit forums and the things people say and i'll just say one last thing about this and we'll move on to more of the video uh, when i lived in ohio i taught some non-credit classes at the local university on mormonism i went to bowling green state university and i taught seniors 55 65 year olds who could take these non-credit courses for very cheap and they could continue learning about various topics. So I did a two part, two hours each part. The first one I did on Mormon history and the second one I did on Mormonism today. And trust me when I tell you, the people in that class who are not Mormons knew Mormonism 
tenfold better than the missionaries and the member of the bishopric and the other ward member that came to listen to me put on that presentation. Mormons, if you want to, you want to ask who in this world knows the least about Mormonism, it's believing Mormons. Absolutely. Hey, I didn't know that about you. That's an interesting story. Can yes. I just, before you play any more video, and I'm sorry, this is pretty much the last thing I, I want to say. I, I made so many notes about this one talk for crying out loud. I could go on for uh, more than an hour, and maybe I will in another time. But the main thing I wanted to say is that since President Nelson is throwing down on people who have doubts as being lazy learners, I feel like it's fair for me to point out the fact that he makes three mistakes in this talk where he is uh, upgrading people for being lazy learners. Let me go real quick through them, okay? okay. Uh, we don't have the, the audio, but that's okay. You'll find it. He says, according to the apostle Paul, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now I'm listening to this live. I'm actually probably vacuuming at the time, but I immediately know he's quoting from Hebrews. It's 11, six. And the fact you is lazy learner. You knew exactly where that was as you're half paying attention. Well, I looked at the 11, six, but I knew it was Hebrews. Okay. Yeah. It's famous from Hebrews, right? Uh, but also I think everybody and their dog should know by now that Paul did not write Hebrews. Yeah. It is an anonymous book. Scholars are pretty much agreed. They don't know who wrote it, but it probably wasn't Paul. Even as early as the fourth century when Eusebius, uh, one of the earliest church fathers, the uh, church historian, uh, was saying about the authorship of Hebrews that God only knows who wrote Hebrews. But yeah. this is a common misperception that he is carrying on. I normally wouldn't bring it up except for the fact that I think that he drew first blood by calling us lazy learners. So there's one mistake. He also talks about, oh, let me say one other thing here. I'll go back to that one. I've got to find this one. Sorry, I've got too many notes. And so this ends up being a long thing. Uh, let me see here. That was one thing. And then, oh, 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 I remember what it is. It's also from Hebrews, but it's later in the talk. I marked this in different colors, so hopefully I should be able to find it pretty quickly. It was really interesting when he was quoting from Hebrews. Oh my gosh, I know I put it in, I apologize for this. Um, Take your time. Well, that's okay. I, I thought I put it in green, but maybe it didn't save. Anyway, I will tell you that there's a place in here where he's quoting from a different place in Hebrews. He's quoting from Hebrews 13, eight, which famously says, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Everybody knows that, don't they? Uh, all the lazy learners out there, I think, know it. But he misquotes it. And he says, Jesus Christ is the same uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I thought, that's funny because he just misquoted the verse. But I figured if he wants to do it, I guess he can. But the funny thing is, is that when you look it up in the uh, on the church website, Oh, there it is. I didn't put it in green. It's in yellow still. Okay. He says, please know this. Please know this. If everyone, if everything and everyone else in the world whom you trust should fail, remember it's this line, Christ and his church will never fail you. Okay. Well, I'm not going to talk about that right now. Yeah. They failed us a million times. That's an episode unto itself. No. And in this very talk where he is, uh, uh, he's mocking people with uh, doubts as being lazy learners. I think that qualifies as the church failing us. Yeah. Okay, he says, but he goes on. The Lord never slumbers, nor does he sleep. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And tomorrow, that's what he says. And I went, what? That's wrong. Um, and in the the transcript, they actually have what he says, 
but they have he, quote, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And tomorrow they put in brackets within the quote because even the people who wrote it down knew he had it wrong. I think because the church is changing so fast to try to save these young people from leaving, maybe the only guarantee we have that it'll be the same as today is tomorrow. Maybe by <laughs> next Thursday, it's going to be different again. They didn't say anything about the day after tomorrow. What happens then? Oh, no. no. So, so he does that. And by the way, I've got to say, President Nelson, you never studied. No. And then the, the final thing is, and I've got to get to this because he started this, I think it was last conference, where he gives this whole talk about, you know, let God prevail. And he goes back to that in this talk. And, you know, everybody's echoing it because everybody's just wowed by this incredible talk, let God prevail. I'm sure you've heard a lot about it. And what he ends up doing is basing this off of a misunderstanding of what the name Israel means. And he gave this whole talk about how Israel, and he's studying it with these scholars, and it must be nice to have scholars who are at your elbows to help you learn the scriptures. But he says he learned from one of them that a possible interpretation of Israel was let God prevail. Mm -hmm. And that's where he references it here. He says, everything good in life, every potential blessing of eternal significance begins with faith. Allowing God to prevail in our lives begins with faith that he is willing to guide us. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that it's necessarily a bad thing to let God prevail in your life. Okay, that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm also not trying to make the point that maybe if you twist Israel enough, you could come up with that as a possible meaning for it. But the problem is, is that this goes back to Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob wrestles with the angel. And he wrestles with him all night long. And the angel cheats. And the angel sort of ends up being God. It's kind of iffy as to which he is. He's an angel first. He's sort of a man first. And he becomes an angel. Then he's referred to as God sort of at the end. So who is it he's wrestling with? But the the angel or God cheats by like laming him, by touching him in his thigh, right? But Jacob still wins. And the fact is, is that Jacob said, uh, God, I'm just going to say it's God because it's God by the end of the wrestling match, right? God loses the wrestling match and he wants to call it a draw. He wants to tap out. And he says to Jacob, he says, let me go, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you give me a blessing. And so God or the angel gives Jacob a blessing. And he said unto him, this is now uh, Genesis 32, 27. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, this is God, 28. Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. This is where he gets his new name, Israel. And why does he get the new name, Israel? Well, that's because as the verse continues, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Yeah. How can we give any other meaning of the word than the one that God gave? Right. This is he got the name Israel because he prevailed over God. He mm. prevailed with God. It wasn't letting God prevail. It's the absolute opposite meaning of it. Yeah. But uh, President Nelson wants it to use it that way in order to promote his message, which is let God prevail in your life, which means let the church prevail in your life, which means do everything that I tell you to do and follow all the LDS commandments. That's what he wants to get out of it. But in order to get there, he has to come up with an interpretation of Israel that's the exact opposite of what it actually means as stated in the scripture, which he doesn't quote in his talk, by the way, before he leaps to this very unusual interpretation of it. Once again, President Nelson, hmm. you never studied. He's a lazy learner. Yeah, he's a lazy learner. And, you know, I put something on Facebook this week where I was saying, like, if we just took a, a hundred 
random ex-Mormons. And I'm not talking about the folks who got baptized and went inactive after a week or two of being members of the church. I'm talking about the folks who were all in, and then they had doubts, which is what the talk is pointed to. They had doubts. They deconstructed the church, and they left. If we take 100 of those random folks and put them up against 100 active, believing Latter-day Saints, you and I both know it would be an ass-whooping. It would be an ass-kicking contest. It'd be like it'd be like fighting a one-legged chicken in an ass-kicking contest. It would be an annihilation. I tell you what, I'll do this right now. I will challenge uh, all 12 apostles and throw in the first presidency for good measure, and I will take them on in Mormon jeopardy. And and you get one lifeline and let me be the phone call, please. Okay, absolutely. And that's it. And then your ass. You wouldn't even need me. You could just not even dial the number. Lazy learners for 200, Alex. That's just it, RFM. You know more than all top 15 men collectively know about the history of the church. I expect so. Yeah. And and that to me is saying something because maybe those 15 men are lazy learners. I got better reflexes on the button. Okay. Yes. Um, all right. So let's move back onto the video. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I want to play one segment. He lays out five things. And I'll just mention this. You and I both know this. The whole point of the talk is to talk about doubters. And when he lays out the five things, he's really quick on points number three, four, and five. He spends a little more time on point number one. Point number one is essentially to learn about Christ. And to study. <clears throat> and to study which they don't really want you to do because research isn't the answer. Remember that. Right. Is that there's that meme that has like, you're allowed to study anything as long as you only study from the approved sources. That's really what they want. And honestly, studying is wrong if it leads to doubts and not studying is wrong if it leads to doubts. Right, right. Anything that leads to doubts is bad. Anything that leads you back into the church stronger, good stuff. Um, Number one is learn about Christ and study. Number two, we'll get to in a moment. Number three was act in faith. Number four was partake of sacred ordinances. And number five was ask God for help. I'm starting to lose my voice, so I'm going to quickly go to number two, which is choose to believe. Second, choose to believe in Jesus Christ. If you have doubts about God the Father and his beloved Son, or the validity of the restoration, or the veracity of Joseph Smith's divine calling as a prophet, choose to believe and stay faithful. Take your questions to the Lord and to other faithful sources. Study with the desire to believe rather than with the hope that you can find a flaw in the fabric of a prophet's life. Just a moment ago, or a discrepancy again. in the scriptures. Stop increasing your doubts by rehearsing them with other doubters. He looks very unhappy here. Allow the Lord to lead you on your journey of spiritual discovery. Wow. This is the frustration I'm talking about. Yeah, he is frustrated. The church is now shrinking. And we showed the numbers earlier. Yes, they're claiming they had just minuscule growth. But again, they're not tracking everybody. They're not tracking people when they die. They're not tracking people when they leave. They don't want to tell you attendance because there is a higher percentage of inactive members today, I guarantee it, than there was five years ago. There was shrinkage. Yeah, there is major shrinkage. There was shrinkage. George would be embarrassed. He'd have to explain it. Um, In this section here, this idea of choose to believe, anyone questioning their faith should stop increasing your doubts by rehearsing them with other doubters. You and I know going to a believing bishop and sharing your doubts isn't going to go anywhere. 
telling your wife half the time isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to end up with a divorce. Relationships are damaged. Nobody wants to hear you talk honestly about the problems that are there. Nobody's got good answers. Patrick Mason's our best and brightest on the inside, and he stands up and gives an entire session where he just admits there's not good answers to anything. Um, this is this is the MO that we're in now. There aren't good answers. Um, the idea of choose to believe to me is really frustrating, and, and we'll get into that in a moment. There's some other things here logically that don't hold up. There's one more little video section I want to play. But the idea of choose to believe, RFM, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to choose to believe in a flat earth. I can do that right now. Okay. Is that real and sincere? No, no. Can you RFM choose to believe in anything that your brain tells you is absurd? No, I can't choose to believe in anything. Right. You can only believe what your brain tells you is reasonable. Now it may not be true. You may believe in false things, right? but but inside your brain, the logic works. And the moment that you see some other answer is more reasonable and more rational, your brain will force you to move from one thing to the other. You can only do what your brain tells you to do. Uh, any other thoughts on this section here about the idea of rehearsing them with other doubters? Oh, well, yeah, I think you already covered it. Basically, you are not supposed to talk about your doubts with anybody, really. Only faithful sources. He doesn't say what faithful sources are. Did you catch that? Are you there, Bill? Are you muted? Uh, I, no, I just was trying to get the video queued up, so I needed to be able to step away. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. But yeah, uh, so you you really are not supposed to talk about these things with other people because really that's the problem that they're having is there's too many Mormons talking about their doubts with other people and it's spreading. It's like an infection. It's even sort of like a pandemic that is spreading within the church and more and more people are leaving. So he's trying to control that. He's trying to contain that. He's trying to isolate it and quarantine it so that it doesn't continue to spread. If he had a vaccine for it, He'd be administering it, but I don't think he has that. He doesn't have answers. He never tries to give answers to the doubts that people have. Instead, he keeps trying to say, quit thinking about it. Choose to, if you have doubts about Joseph Smith, he has to throw in Jesus Christ too. But if you have doubts about the church, just, you know, be like Scarlett O'Hara. I'll think about that tomorrow. Choose to believe. I can't choose to believe something any more than I can choose whom I love. Yeah. It's not a matter of volition. Okay. Now there are maybe certain, uh, we, Santa Claus gets overused as an example, but when I'm a kid, I believed in Santa Claus, but I didn't believe him because I had no evidence. I believed him because I had evidence. My authority figures in my life told him he was real, told me he was real. Uh, presents appeared under the tree on Christmas morning. The cookies were eaten. The milk was drunk. Santa Claus. But then I grew up. I found out he wasn't real. Hope there's no kids listening. If so, I'm just kidding. He really is real. But I found out that he's not real. And now I can't go back to believing him, believing in him just because I choose to. If I could, when I was, you know, a younger kid, I would have because it was a lot more fun to believe in Santa Claus than it was to realize that he wasn't real. I would have chosen to believe in him if I could, but I could not choose to believe in him once I understood that he wasn't real. Yeah. And when I'm trying to, I'm trying to frame this, right. You're, you, you're right. Like you can believe in things because other people have clouded your judgment. There are people who believe in a flat earth because they are surrounded with flat earth ideas. There are people who believe we never landed on the moon. 
And again, I'm not arguing whether these are true or not, just accepted generally in society as being false and that there's a small segment of people who believe them and what it takes to be the minority believing something versus the majority. President Nelson's talk isn't at all really designed to compel the person with serious doubts to choose to believe. The talk is designed for the believer to be scared as hell to go out and do the research and to look at the history and to go dive into the sources. The church does not want people diving into the sources to the point where last week we showed that they don't even want to put all the material up on the Joseph Smith Papers Project uh, when it came to Fannie Elger and uh, Joseph Smith's affair. They didn't want members seeing that. Um, that's what's really going on. Now, there's this last little section. Starts at about 1048, and there are tons of bad logic. And I'll, I'll just play this through share a few little thoughts, and then we can move on. A non-believer might say that faith is for the weak. But this assertion overlooks the power of faith. Would the Savior's apostles have continued to teach his doctrine after his death, at the peril of their lives, if they had doubted him? Would, would Muhammad's followers have done all they did and sacrificed all they sacrificed if, if, if they didn't have you know faith that this was legit? Like There are counter arguments to every one of these points. I'll continue here. Would, Would Joseph and Hiram Smith have suffered martyrs' deaths defending the restoration of the Lord's church unless they had a sure witness that it was true? Would terrorists strap bombs in their backpacks and on their chest and walk into populated city squares and aboard airplanes on 9-11 if it wasn't true? That reminds me of a terrible joke I heard from another attorney. It was about a mother of a terrorist talking to another mother of a terrorist and saying very sadly, they blow up so fast. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh, but that's good. I hope so. You see, I told you I'd get to something controversial where yeah. everybody can you know, get at me. Uh, by the way, the fundamental mistake he's making here in all these examples is that he is equating sincerity of belief with accuracy of belief. Yeah. There have been lots of people and significant groups of people who have committed egregious acts that are based in faith that every Mormon in the world would disagree with as any chance of it being true. Yeah, let me say that once again, because I want to say it correctly, because that's the word I want. He's confusing sincerity of belief with correctness of belief. Right. People have faith in false things and do stuff in mass uh, all the time. Yes, even up to and including sacrificing their lives, which I'm not exactly sure that that's what Joseph Smith was doing that day. Uh, but even if we grant that, it does not prove the correctness of the belief. Yeah, and you're already pointing out, if we actually look at the martyrdom, Joseph did not want to die that day. He wasn't giving his life freely. He did everything within his power to fight back, including having a gun, blocking the door, um, and just not wanting to be there in the first place. Yeah, which I would have done too. Yeah, all of us would have. So martyr, maybe, maybe not. Would nearly 2,000 saints have died along the Pioneer Trail if they did not have faith that the gospel of Jesus Christ had been restored? Has, has, um, I'm thinking of like the, uh, the wars over religion that happened in like the 1400s and the 1300s, the crusades that occurred. How many people 
were adamant that their version of their religion was true, that they banded together with other collective believers and gave up their very life doing hard things, harder than pushing a, a handcart across the country and getting to Utah. Yes, and actually the way he put it here with this third example, would 2,000 of them have died going across the trail to Utah on that 111-day trek uh, if they didn't have faith that the church was true? Yeah, I do believe that they wouldn't have done that if they didn't have faith that the church was true. But right. so what? That doesn't make the church true. Right, that's a non sequitur. Yeah, but he throws that in and uh, doesn't really complete the thought the way he, he tries to get the listener to pick up on it. Truly, faith is the power that enables the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. Whether the thing they have faith in is true or not. Right. The truth, the correctness of the belief does not have anything to do with his statement, which I think is probably correct, that faith is a power to allow the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. It's a nice bumper sticker slogan. I will accept that as largely true. But yeah. so what? Yeah. And, and the whole point here, when you understand how language can be used to manipulate people into thinking certain things, you can recognize pretty quickly that he is talking to the believer and he is trying to help them just a little bit more than the day before see their believing family or their unbelieving family, the doubters in their family, the, the, the guys in the ward who are barely hanging on to see those people as deficient in some way, to see them as having not taken the gospel as serious as you believers, having not worked as hard as you believers, having fallen for a bunch of bull crap along the wayside. And, and it's you guys who don't know a damn thing about Mormonism, you guys are the ones who put all the work in. So stay away from those people. They're sick. They've got something. They're, they're less than in some way. And it really is a deeply unhealthy, psychologically manipulating talk. Yeah, two things really quick. Uh, and once again, I'm sorry, just a few things here. Uh, one is that um, I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that many, many people who are doubting have members of the church, or excuse me, members of their family who are still very much involved in believing members of the church. And what President Nelson is doing by calling them lazy learners is he is not only judging them and, uh, well, uh, mocking them, basically, but he's also, by his example, giving permission to those family members, as well as every other member of the church, to do the same thing with anybody who has doubts, that they are lazy learners and therefore they can be discounted because they don't know the real Mormonism. They never took the time to learn it. That's why they have the doubts. And so they're able to push them away following President Nelson's example. The second thing is about these poor saints, you know, 2000 of them dying, going across the plains. Yeah, that happened. But the rhetorical strategy of this is to say to you, and I think you were getting at this bill, which is you haven't died for the faith yet. So don't you dare think that you have sacrificed enough for the faith because compared to the saints who died, compared to Joseph and Hiram who were martyred, you have not met that level of commitment yet. And until you do, you've got nothing to complain about and you just need to suck it up, put your shoulder to the wheel and push along. Yeah. Would, would 200,000 people join the Sea Org of Scientology if it, if they, you know, if they didn't have faith or if it wasn't true, like those, like as you pointed out and saying other things, what you're pointing out is that these statements just aren't true when they're handled as uh, being based on their logic. They turn out to just be fallacies. Everybody who has faith in a specific religious system, every religion can point to 
experiences where the followers of that religion banded together and did great things. And just because they did that, Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, predicted that Jesus would come back. And when he didn't, most of them doubled down on their faith. They Why would they do that if it wasn't true? Like believers are going to believe. And when shiz gets hard, generally the majority of believers actually, because of uh, belief persistence in our brain, actually believe stronger when contradictions arise. It's not as simple as going like, oh, there's contradictions and now the church isn't true. And so everybody leaves. No, people double down on their beliefs when those beliefs are important to them. So if um, you are, yeah, I don't know where you are. Are you about concluded with um, this talk from conference? I'm essentially done. My last thing I want to say is President Nelson, I'm, I think it's traumatic and harmful. The things that you're saying to members of the church about their doubting or disbelieving family, friends, coworkers, et cetera. But there's a part of me that hopes you keep doing it because I think if you keep doing it, you're going to keep alienating people. People are going to see you don't have any access to any magic. By the way, he doesn't have enough faith to make fast that he put into motion, reduce or get rid of COVID. Science did that. Medical experts did that. Prophet seers and revelators are useless with the actual challenges of life. President Nelson, if you keep and the other guys around you keep saying shitty stuff, we can expect numbers like, like those ones. Oh, those ones there. Sorry. Got to always get used to being in the inverse. Uh, those ones there, those numbers are going to keep getting worse. And I bet I'm going to prophesy I'm going to bet sometime in the next five years, the church is going to completely stop sharing this data. That's my prophecy because they can't go to into conference and start telling people there's 15 million people. There's 14 million members. There's 13. They just can't do that. They've got to figure out a way around it. Market elder Rigdon market. There you go. That's it. I'm all finished there. What other thoughts do you have for us for the night? I just wanted to um, read a passage from this book I'm reading. Um, and all lazy learners should read this. This is uh, by John Steinbeck. Travels with Charlie in search of America. He takes his dog, his uh, poodle, whose name is Charlie. He goes across America. And he does this, I think, in 1960, 61. And uh, maybe in 58. Anyway, anyway, he's going across. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm enjoying it so much. And I was reading this passage the other night, which made me think of what it was that President Nelson was talking about. And I thought, this is another way of looking at things. Instead of saying, I've got the truth and everybody who has doubts are lazy learners. This is what John Steinbeck said. And this is where he's talking about writing this book as he goes to different places and is encountering different people. And this is just about a page here. So it will give you a chance to set things up, maybe people to call. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it? What's the phone number? It is 435-200-FIST. Okay, so here we go. John Steinbeck. On the long journey that he was on, on, on the long journey, doubts were often my companions. I've always admired those reporters who can descend on an area, talk to key people, ask key questions, take samplings of opinions, and then set down an orderly report, very much like a roadmap. I envy this technique, and at the same time, do not trust it as a mirror of reality. I feel that there are too many realities. What I set down here in this book, what I set down here is true. Until someone else passes that way, 
and rearranges the world in his own style. In literary criticism, the critic has no choice but to make over the victim of his attention into something the size and shape of himself. Now he talks about this trip to Prague. And in this report, I do not fool myself into thinking I am dealing with constants. That's constants, N-T-S, not a name. Things that are constant, with constants. A long time ago, I was in the ancient city of Prague, and at the same time, Joseph Alsop, the justly famous critic of places and events, was there. He talked, he talked to informed people, officials, ambassadors. He read reports, even the fine print and figures. While I, in my slipshod manner, roved about with actors, gypsies, and vagabonds. Joe and I flew home to America on the same plane. And on the way, he told me about Prague. And his Prague, this is key, and his Prague had no relation to the city I had seen and heard. It just wasn't the same place. And yet each of us was honest, neither one a liar, both pretty good observers by any standard. And we brought home two cities, two truths. For this reason, I cannot commend this account as an America that you will find. And here's this wonderful last part. So much there is to see, but our morning eyes describe a different world than do our afternoon eyes. And surely our wearied evening eyes can report only a weary evening world. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. There now there may be a prophets here in Revelation. There's there's scripture for you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. I often think of the wisdom that is available. I'll say this too, because nobody's called yet. If somebody wants to call, by all means, we'd love to have a few phone calls. Um, when I began deconstructing Mormonism and I started looking outside of Mormonism for wisdom and for good ideas and information to start wrestling with just how we all believe or disbelieve things and how our how we develop as adults and how our mind develops and how how faith develops. When I started reading guys like Rob Bell, um, Reza Aslan, Richard Rohr, Brene Brown, I, I was caught off guard. Let me pick the phone up here and just call to, from. Give us give us just one second. Um, I was caught off guard by the fact that there was wisdom available in the secular or even greater religious world that I never even thought was possible because I was in this little box with my authorities being these 15 men who are just constantly manipulating you and deceiving you and being dishonest to you. And as I go into the greater world and I start reading like real wisdom and listening to real wisdom, it caught me off guard. I didn't, I didn't plan for the depth of it that had existed. And it was that moment I'm like, wow, my authorities don't really have much to give me. Even in the once every six months that these guys are like, we're the greatest thing. Here it is. Let me give you the best stuff ever. Yeah. It's, it's a really shallow pool and you don't realize you're even in the kiddie pool. Oh, absolutely. And it's not until you get out of it and start encountering wisdom, uh, real wisdom, that you start seeing how pale in comparison Mormon doctrine is. And you learn the truth of Sterling McMurrin's observation that Mormon doctrine is a mile wide and an inch thick or an inch deep. Yeah. Sorry, I'm quoting people on the fly. I don't always get it right the first time. 
It's the same, the same difference. Um, we've got Keith on the line. Keith, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What, uh, what are your thoughts tonight? Well, good evening, gentlemen. I really appreciate what you're doing and letting us bask in your intellectual glory. Um, I want to talk for a second about the uh, lack of babies. I don't know if you guys caught the uh, Patrick Mason speech to the Logan Stake on February 28th, uh, Mormon stories. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, what was interesting, I thought, is he was putting up statistics, which were, I got to give him credit because he's a pretty brave guy, Patrick Mason. And uh, as of 2016, one of the statistics was that the church is only retaining 46% of millennial members, not converts, but actual actual people born members. And uh, I think that explains the lack of lack of babies that they're having. You know, those are the ones having the kids right now, and I expect that number to drop significantly. So. I'll let you guys talk about that, and I'll hang up. Thank you. As you well know, too, RFM, people are marrying later in life. People are having less children. Uh, There are lots of factors that are outside Mormonism that are also going to contribute to this trajectory uh, increasing and looking more significant as time goes on. I think we're just – I think it's been happening for a few years, but I think we're just starting to see Mormonism be willing to kind of show it in the data. Yeah, I know. I wish I'd had a few. I should say, I wish I had a couple fewer children. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I won't say a word. Some of them listen to the show. <laughs> I'll let them fight it out amongst themselves as to who they are. But I think they know. Yeah. Here comes uh, call number two. Call Caller, tell us your name and then uh, let us know what you're thinking. Hello? Hi, um, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm down in Australia. Um, Good day, Mike. I just wanted to show uh, my experience as an ex-Mormon. Um, my first, uh, uh, I'm getting an echo, so I'm going to the other room. Um, my first experience um, in um, in um, being exposed to um, the truth of Mormonism was uh, DNA in the Book of Mormon, and that was. Um, uh, that led to other things, and um, finally led to my um, exit of the faith back in 2013. And um, um, the more I get settled in as an ex-Mormon and uh, come to terms with it, new things come out, especially at um, at, at the um, at general conferences. And I hadn't seen this last one just yet, but I've heard about the lazy learner and. It's just like he's calling us retarded. Yeah, which is a word we can't use anymore. So, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. <clears throat> no, he, uh, no, I hear. Uh, um, I don't know if you can hear me. Uh, just Probably new not. things keep, um, yeah, like um, RFM has stated that, yeah, um, uh, during this during this um, broadcast, he gets settled down. They don't get angry anymore, and then something pops up, and I just felt so angry about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Carl. I'm going to hang up. We'll respond to that. Appreciate the phone call. No worries. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I, I think he makes the point, which is that often the church infantilizes uh, its membership. It treats it like they're children. It doesn't really want them to learn and to grow and to uh, develop into adult perspectives. And it often treats those of us who have left in negative ways. And I, I think I can agree with the caller on that much. 
Yeah, and the numbers about the babies may may suggest that the church not only infantilizes its members, it, it infanticides its members. And it infanticides them too. <laughs> By the way, I know we're not supposed to use that R word anymore, yeah, okay? No. And I think that's right. But I think that there is there is some truth to what he's saying about the members of the church, that they are uh, not smart, that they are dumb in some way. And I don't know if that's true, but I do think that President Nelson is the driver of the short school bus. The, yeah, um, yeah, the, full of lazy runners. Is that Ryan? It is. Ryan, you are on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. I think we'll take another call or two uh, after you, but uh, you're on the air. What do you have for us? Yeah, I had a couple questions for you guys. So um, recently I've been having a dialogue with an institute teacher, and um, it, he's a really awesome guy. And uh, Anyways, I'm going to a class of his, and they go over the gospel topics essays, yeah. and they That's are going funny. to be going over either the uh, Book of Mormon translation, mm -hmm. or they will be going over the first vision accounts. And I was wondering if either of you have really good um, resources for going a little bit further and above and beyond on those essays to kind of read up on it, so that I, uh, I, I mean, I've read the CES letter, and I, I kind of know the material there, but I didn't know if you guys had uh, sources that maybe uh, would be a really good read uh, before that discussion. Yeah, let me, I'll hang up with you and we'll respond. Okay, thank you. You did some podcasts on that, didn't you, Bill? Uh, I've done some podcasts on the gospel topic essays. It is an episode titled, The Struggle is Real. It goes through the most problematic essays and shares what it is about the conversation that's problematic. If, if people are going to be doing this out in wards and talking about gospel topic essays, your conversation with Robert Rittner and John DeLynn is a great one for the Book of Abraham. Um, there are great articles out there. In fact, the interpreter put out an article about seer stones that I thought was fantastic. There's a faithful side, but they share all the data, all the quotes. They show you kind of what really happened, how it got confusing, and why leaders, and I say why, but showing that leaders did teach something different than the seer stone specifically the Nephite interpreters or spectacles. Uh, regardless of what essay it is, there should be at this point plenty of information, whether it's Lindsay Hansen Parks episodes on polygamy and various others, there should be plenty of material. You just have to do a Google search and know what keywords you're looking for. And most of those things should be pretty easy to find. And actually, Bill, I was talking about the ones you did with um, Alan Mount and Anthony Miller. Oh, where we talked about each of the gospel topic essays in depth, and we brought various experts on uh, with each of the conversations. Right. We, we essentially dove into each one of those essays, put tons of sources at the end of each of the episode notes. Um, you, thank you, by the way, for reminding me of that. that that's, by the way, an incredible project that Anthony and Alan, and we still, I think, have more to do, and we're just slowly kind of putting those out from time to time. Uh, caller, tell us your name, and then you're on the air with RFM and Bill Real. What... Uh, what are your thoughts tonight? And I think if it's okay, our family will make this the last call. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My name is um, Clark. Um, so I've never been um, Mormon, but it seems like members always question themselves when they're going through the whole faith uh, transition. And you mentioned that you asked, is there a problem with me? So uh, what helps you from no longer questioning yourself and being shamed from people like Nelson from critically thinking about things? about the church. You're asking, what am I like now that I'm away from that? No, like uh, what helped you no longer question, uh, questioning yourself so you can um, question the church, like um, the church. Oh, yeah. 
Um, re- redirect your questioning to yourself rather than to itself. Yeah, yeah, sure. Great question. I'll hang up with you and I'll respond. Okay. Perfect. Um, there was a point, RFM, in 2012 when I started the podcast Mormon Discussion, and uh, I had just come across Brad Wilcox, and I was learning about grace and justification and sanctification, and I fell in love with that I- ideology. I fell in love with that new way of seeing grace. It wasn't the old Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith way. And I went, there was a time where I'm like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get to the celestial kingdom. I've got too much crap going on here. I'm too messy. And I said, but I'll stay. I'll help everybody else get there. I'll, I'll, I'll be the one who kind of helps people in my ward move along just like others are helping. And I thought, okay, I can dedicate my life to the church, but I just don't feel good about myself getting there. And I think a lot of members of the church feel that way. They feel like this bar of perfection is too damn high and they never get to achieve it. As I started, Brad Wilcox led me to beginning to challenge Mormonism because he showed me grace in this new way that no other prophet, seer, or revelator, and they should have been the ones that came to it first, no other leader had ever spoken of it, to the point where Uchtdorf later on steals Wilcox's ideas and implements them into a general conference talk. When I started to see that voices like Terrell Givens and... um, uh, Robert Millett was another one, uh, Stephen Robinson, um, Brad Wilcox could completely unravel what prophets had taught for 200 years, show it in a new way, and everybody goes like, oh, let's just go to that. You start to feel a comfort in deconstructing things like, oh, you can just be an average Joe in this church and you can come up with the right answer, and these guys missed the mark for 200 years. And as that process was going on, I start to explore outside of Mormonism, as I mentioned earlier. And I start reading books like The uh, Critical Journey by Robert Gulich and Janet Hagberg. I uh, read a book. Um, oh, there are several ones on faith. One was uh, Margaret Placentra Johnson, uh, Faith Beyond Belief, I think was the title of that one. Uh, there were others. And as I started to understand human development, I started to make room for the Thomas McConkies of Mormonism. And um, I began to challenge everything. And then I suddenly start reading books on human development, the one, some of the ones I mentioned and others. And I start to go like, oh, like this mess inside me is just a normal human being. Like I'm actually a decent human being. I just got some normal crap going on in here. And I started to just see the church as making us all feel like we're not making it. When in reality, these are just a bunch of normal human beings doing normal human being stuff to various degrees. And at that point, I just felt safe and like, these guys don't have it. I'm going to disregard them. Real truth, wisdom, advice, resources, to be honest, is almost always something else outside the church. It's never the top 15. Yeah. I found that uh, the process and the stages I went through are rather common. First off, when I'm a young member, a new member of the church, I give absolute authority to the top leadership of the church and especially to the prophet because he's the number one top dog, head honcho, big burrito. He is it. He's the mouthpiece of God. But all the apostles, they get all the authority. I will do whatever they say. I will believe whatever they tell me to believe. And then I start growing up. And as you study, by the way, if you're a lazy learner, you're never going to go through these stages, I got to tell you. But as you start learning in the church, you start realizing that there's all this conflict. There's all these different people saying different things. You start going through this whole process of trying to prioritize the doctrine because in Mormonism, truth is determined not by what is said, but by who says it. 
So then you find things that are contradictory and you say, okay, well, this guy was a prophet. This guy was just an apostle. Therefore, we got to go with the prophet, right? Yeah, you, you do all this stuff in order to try and systematize the, conf the conflicting statements about various doctrines in the church over the history of the church. So you do that, you start realizing these guys really don't have any kind of claim to doctrinal inerrancy, mm -hmm. not infallibility. I'm not saying they're perfect. They don't say they're perfect, but they do present as being doctrinally inerrant. They don't make any mistakes when it comes to speaking the doctrine. And so you start realizing that you start setting outside the church. You start realizing that there are sources of wisdom outside the church that make what they're doing and saying look really bad by comparison. And you start growing beyond that. And then you come to the next stage where you say, okay, these guys aren't what they are insinuating and claiming to be. They don't have the prophetic gifts that they claim. They don't see Jesus on the fourth floor of the Salt Lake temple for, you know, brunch every Thursday. They don't have these things. And then you go through the stage of, well, you know, they're good guys. They're good men. They're doing the best they can, right? They put on their pants one leg at a time like the rest of us. And they're just trying to do their best. And then you continue to study, or at least I did. And then I started realizing, wait a second, these aren't even really good guys. And I only say that, and I, I want to just, you know, uh, put an asterisk next to that. I'm not saying they're out doing bad things, but what I'm saying is that when, as I have documented and discovered, thoroughly documented on this show, on other places, that they actively are engaged in hiding the true history of the church from the members. That is what I define as something that a good person does not do when they are asking and demanding and requiring members to sacrifice everything about their lives for the church. That's not something a good person does, in my view. When they put out materials and support the idea that they actually have seen Jesus Christ personally, and that gives him them the ultimate authority over everybody else who has not, that, in my view, is not something a good person does. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say that I came to the point where I realized I'm not even sure these are good guys who are trying to do the best they can do anymore. And at that point, I really sort of became untethered from feeling subject, subject to their authority. And I became much more comfortable in reclaiming my authority. Yeah. The, there's so much more wisdom in the world. There's so many more opportunities to learn and to grow and to develop as a human being that, that if you believe these guys are the key to information, if these guys are the key to truth, you're, you're just missing so much. I'm, I'm just listening to Sam Harris's podcast, listening to Joe Rogan interview fascinating people. All of these things are, are, are crucial uh, to you being a better human being. And if you're just listening to these top 15 men, you're just not, you're just drinking from the shallow end. Um, I, I want to finish by asking you this, which is, do I, I think I'm a little worried that people aren't going to be excited for next week's program. You have this really boring topic for next week. I do. We're just going to interview somebody who probably is not known to many people uh, in the uh, audience, but uh, his name is Kwaku. Kwaku, okay. With a I long A. There's a Kwaku. Who is this guy? Some people have mispronounced that, but yeah. the correct pronunciation, I believe, is Kwaku. His last name is L E L, Kwaku L. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, he is uh, he's a, a young man. Um, he is very uh, prominent, I think, within apologetic circles. Yeah, he was one of the individuals who built up the Three Mormons podcast, which yeah. since became Saint Scripted because, you know, Mormons, hashtag victory for Satan. 
And so that's the same one. But now he's sort of been moved off of there and sort of been deleted, sort of canceled from uh, Saints Unscripted. And then he made a string of videos uh, with others for um, FAIR, the artist formerly known as FAIR Mormon. Mm-hmm. But now they're back to FAIR. And when they changed their name to FAIR a couple of weeks ago, they also, uh, without any fanfare or really announcement, they just deleted all the um, the 13 or so videos that Kwaku and Brad Whitbeck and uh, Cardin Ellis had made. These were the T-I-T-S, this is the show yeah. videos. Yeah. And so we're going to have him on. He's graciously agreed to come on. I've talked to him a couple times on the phone about an hour each time. I think he's uh, very entertaining, very interesting. I think we have a lot in common. I think we'll have a great time. So that's there. But by the way, uh, I'm sorry, there was this other thing, this little Ooh. reference from Plato that you're talking about with the shallow end. Uh, I'm afraid I'm at the shallow end of the gene pool. Yeah. Name that movie. I uh, I don't know. Okay, I'll let people name it in the comments. Okay, first person to... The first person to guess it gets a prize of some <clears> sort. I'll let you determine what the prize is. It's probably a rock. <laughs> you just got a new shipment of. But no, it's like it, when when I was a member of the church. There it is. There's one of them. When I was a member of the church and in that position, it's the same thing uh, as just taking everything that they said and thinking this was God's gift. You know, it's general conference. And my gosh, oh, let it wash over me. Let it wash over me. And starting wondering, why is it that I'm not only not spiritually fed, I'm actually starving out here. It's like being, if, if you're chained to a rock in a cave and all you can see are shadows on the walls. Yeah, there he goes. But that's not the name of the movie, Clint. Try again. And don't forget to frame your answer in the form of a question. Um, if, if that's all you see are the shadows on the walls, which are being cast by guys holding puppets behind you in a fire and casting the shadows. If all you see are puppets, the shadows of puppets on the wall, and that's all you've known is your reality, then you're going to think that that's reality and you will continue to think it's reality until unless you actually are able to start turning around, seeing what's making the shadows, seeing the fire, making your way out of the cave, seeing the sun, you know how the parable goes. But that's what I have found. My experience has been that once I have been able to graduate from Mormonism, it's not easy because they don't want to let you go. They do not want to let you go. Right. They don't want to let you uh, out of the cave until you have doubts. And then they, they really hope you go packing, get the hell out of this cave, man. We no longer have space for you here. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. I think that was pretty much the thought. If I didn't complete it, then you can complete it for me. Well, I don't have anything else to add to it. Uh, in terms of Quaku, we, we are primarily, yeah. you've set this up. We've, you, by the way, behind the scenes, you reached out, you've worked this out. He's been critical of both of us. We've been critical of him. He's been gracious enough to accept the invitation. We're going to talk about certain kinds of topics. And I just want to give maybe listeners a heads up. Uh, essentially, his relationship and leaving or being dismissed from Saints Unscripted and from FAIR, as you pointed out, we, we've agreed, all of us, to, to play nice and to talk to each other respectfully and to essentially give him a chance to explain what those two entities, what that relationship was and, and why he's no longer with them. And so I would encourage listeners, we would welcome questions. But we are really asking you next week to be respectful and kind. We have a certain agenda that we're trying to accomplish in terms of getting information out. And we want we want him to feel like we were respectful towards him. And we anticipate that he's going to return that respect back to us as well uh, it, through a cordial conversation, just trying to get to the bottom of what was all going on there. Yes. And by the way, believe it or not, 
since I've tried to uh, initiate this detente, this uh, rapprochement, so to speak, um, I've been getting some pressure from this side about having him on. He's been getting pressure from his side about being on. And everybody's like all animated and concerned about what's going to happen. Well, yeah. uh, hopefully that's part of the draw and everybody will show up. But I do think that I have to make it really clear now beyond dispute because it's part of the pressure that he's been receiving, as he calls it, the heat that he's been receiving. Uh, I have to make it absolutely clear beyond question that Quaku was never actually a member of Fair Mormon. Yeah, there that's are people. Fake. I put that in the post to the episode initially. We fixed it since. Yes, he is the, not. Yeah, he's not a, a, an employee or a volunteer. I think with Fair Mormon. Right. This is not Quaku's concern, but there exist certain people who are very, very concerned at making it very, very clear that Quaku was never a member or with Fair Mormon. He was sort of like a contracted employee. So apparently, some people want to make that really clear that there was never any kind of real association between fair mormon and quaker there's a little bit of distancing that seems to be want to be crystal, going on crystal clear okay good yeah and if, if anybody knows what movie that's from you could put that in the comments too crystal, crystal clear well crystal is that clear crystal oh she rest my case your honor good job yeah i don't know that one you need me on that wall you want me on that wall Please oh even talk about a few good mormons a few almost <laughs> there's that um also folks here we are we're wrapping up we're getting ready to end it um please help us do this long into the future i know you're gonna get tired of me asking for donations but that's how we operate i never uh, get tired of hearing this no so this is my favorite part of the show <laughs> we um we need to bring in enough funds that i've been doing this since 2012 to be honest there's a degree of me that's burnt out uh, RFM, I you're still going at this thing 100 miles an hour, but at some point you're going to start to get like, ah, I'm just tired. I want to do this every day. What helps that is by being financially compensated as host of a podcast that put tons of time and energy in. If you'll please go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button and drop us five bucks a month. Are we worth that much in terms of the entertainment value, the things you learn, what's going on? If you can do more, great. Um, in the past few weeks, it's fun to watch these donations come in. Some folks are giving 500 or a thousand. Um, the funds are showing up to this program as a new program. that's only been out a few months. We, we would ask you to continue to do that as you donate, you help keep this program alive. Uh, fair accuses us of priestcraft. They accuse me of priestcraft anyway, it, that used to not be the case in terms of making something on the podcast. I'll just tell everybody point blank. I've given myself a salary this year of $15,000. That's what I make. Um, I'm encouraging folks, please donate. It helps us to keep this thing going. And, and we want to be able to support podcasts like marriage on a tightrope and be able to pay Alan and Katie. If you like what they're doing, donate to them. If you like radio free Mormon, donate to him. Uh, if you like Mormon discussion, donate there. Uh, if you're liking this program, Mormonism Live, donate. Um, we just those funds allow us to do this for another decade, another 15 years, another 20 years. We'll see where this goes, but it is very important to keeping this thing going. Yeah. So you know, it occurs to me that those guys drawing down six-figure salaries from the church are sure eager to call other people uh, priest crafts yeah. or priest crafters. And we're going to talk next week about when we talk, have Kwaku on and we talk about uh, his relationship with uh, the three Mormons or Saints Unscripted or FAIR. 
We're going to talk, I hope, I hope there was some room to ask questions about the More Good Foundation, who brings in millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. And it might be interesting to see what Kwaku thinks about how that how much money comes in and where it's spent and how much he was involved in any awareness of that. Um, but I'm excited about next week's conversation. So everybody tune in next week uh, for Mormonism Live. RFM, thanks again for another show. And uh, Are you ready to sing our out song? What With is, me? We're going to sing our out song. Tell you me know how it goes. Uh, tell me how it goes. May tomorrow be a perfect day. May you find love and laughter along the way. May God keep you in his tender care. You know what this is from, don't you? I don't know what this Two is. Two good from. men. May God keep you in his tender care till he brings us together again. Now you say with me, good night, everybody. Good, good night, night, everybody. everybody. Yeah.